0: Thank you, Jeff. We're in the process of discussing Bible translations and reading from the King James. You'd almost have it have it in front of you to see some of the spelling and so on. You know that may be somewhat different. But tonight we want to spend just a few minutes looking at the history of the New International Version. Lord willing. In the next couple of weeks, we'll consider some history of the King James Version also. The NIV was first published in 1973 with the New Testament only. The completed NIV was published in 1978. It was the only quote-unquote modern version or translation of the time that became widely accepted in conservative circles. It was revised in 1984, and if you have an NIV, you probably have a 1984 revision. It was revised again in 2011. The NIV 11 is not a new translation, it's a revision of the 1984 translation of the NIV. And as you think about translations, I would just encourage you to keep in mind that the King James Version was also revised. No one has that I know of and uses a 1611 Version of the King James Bible. It was revised within several years of being written, and then four or five times I'll give you the exact dates, and then ultimately in 1769, most King James Versions that are used today are 1769. Again, just a little history of Bible translation. There's two other translations that came out being based on the NIV. There was a British NIVI in 1996. Some thought that was somewhat of inclusive language. And then in 2002, there was a TNIV, an unsuccessful attempt by the publishers to replace the NIV. When I say unsuccessful, the TNIV, today's new international version, just never took a hold probably for a variety of reasons some of which may come up in the future the reason for the revisions in the NIV is the NIV charter is committed to maintaining contemporary language so as language changes they want to update it to you know bring about language changes that are more like may be spoken at the present time and we'll discuss that some in the future. The changes in the NIV 11 are about 5% of the 1984 version. And my encouragement is do not compare the NIV 11 to the NIV or other translations to determine its accuracy go back to the original languages and again we have to accept what others say that is Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek and I think that should be done with any translation. This afternoon I was looking through the um, TNIV for a little while just looking at some passages that I know are questionable but again I, need, I shouldn't say well how does this compare to the NIV or the NIV 11, how does it compare to what is being said in the original languages so it's a little history on the NIV the overall view of the N-I-V Bible. Any questions or comments? Alan. The N-I-V 11, you say, is a revision, not a translation. Yeah, well, it's a revision of the N-I-V. So it's... Saying it's a revision and not a translation, can you compare it to the N-I-V, since it's a revision of that translation? It is a translation, but it's maybe I should say it's not a new translation. It's taking the NIV 11 and making some changes in light of things that may be found out in light of language changes. The same thing would have been done with the King James Version uh, a number of times along the way. There were some revisions, the same translation, maybe updated might be a better word. Answer your question, Alan? Okay. Any other questions? What's the T stand for today's? today's new international version. And some people felt that was gender neutral, which we'll discuss you no know, in the future. As we think about the NIV, I'm talking the NIV 1984 edition. I don't know about you, but when you say something, you like to be taken at your word. There have been things said about the NIV, there have been things said about the NIV-11, some good, maybe not. some not so good. So what I'm going to do now, I've taken the preface of the NIV and basically reduced it you know, to some general statements. What the translators are saying about the NIV, they would say it's a completely new translation. That's the NIV, 1984, the one that is no longer available. It was made by over 100 scholars working directly from the best available Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek text. Remember what I said this morning about know how many people are involved in the translation. If you read the Living Bible, that's basically paraphrased by Ken Taylor. If you use the Message, that's not the entire Bible, but there's various parts of the Bible where Eugene Peterson you know, translated some again done by one individual. That stands in distinction to a translation like the King James Bible was made by many scholars and the same being true of the NIV. The NIV translation, where well, the process began in 1965, when after several years of exploratory study, a group of scholars met in Illinois and concurred in the need for a new translation of the Bible in contemporary English. So that's kind of where it began. The need was endorsed, endorsed by a large number of leaders from many denominations who met in Chicago in 1966. And again, if you want to read the preface, you'll find all this information there. Responsibility for the new translation was delegated to a self-governing body of 15. The Committee of Bible Translation, composed for the most part of Biblical scholars from colleges, universities, and seminaries. You no, know, they were kind of the overseers, a self-governing body. Individuals from many countries and denominations were involved, helping to say, safeguard the translation from sectariat biased. Denominations do have biased, that's a given. And if you have a Bible that would be translated by given denominations, their bias would come through. So NIV, as was the King James, was a broad range of translators. The translation of each book was assigned to a team of scholars. Next, it was revised by the intermediate editorial committee with constant reference to the Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek. Their work then went to one of the general editorial committees, which checked it in detail and made another thorough revision. This revision in turn was carefully reviewed by the Committee on Bible Translation, which made further changes and then released the final version for publication. Thus, the entire Bible underwent three revisions, during which the translation was examined for its faithfulness to the original languages, And for its English style. Again, that's the history of the NIV, the 1984. And I see there's the rest of what I was reading. Thousands of hours of research and discussion regarding the meaning of the text and the precise way of putting them into English. You know, you're dealing with much, much time by many, many people. The goal of the committee on Bible translation was an accurate translation and clarity and literary quality so that it would prove suitable for public and private reading, teaching, preaching, and memorization. Again, this is coming from the preface. In working towards these goals, the translators were united in their commitment to the authority and infallibility of the Bible as God's word in written form. Now, there was a commitment to the Bible as being infallible and also authoritative. The committee believes the Bible contains the divine answers to the deepest needs of humanity. Thus, it sheds light on our path in a dark world, and it sets forth the ways of eternal well-being, where the committee and so on were coming from. They were concerned about the accuracy of the translation and its fidelity to the thought of the biblical writers. You know, what was the biblical writer saying when the text was originally written? <coughs> How does that go from one language into modern-day English. They weighed the significance of the lexical and grammatical details of the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek text. Again, this is what the writers or translators are saying about what they did. They attempted more than a word-for-word translation because the thought patterns and syntax differ from language to language Faithful communication of the meaning of the writers of the Bible demands frequent modification in sentence structure and constant regard for the contextual meaning of words. If you take Greek or Hebrew and try to do a word-for-word translation, you would not have a readable translation today because languages are different, and I will give you some examples of that in the next couple of weeks where if you translate literally, word for word, here's what it will appear. The same is true today. When I was in Africa and various people translated for me, they did not take each of the words that I spoke and literally translate them in the same order. They were communicating the meaning that I was stating. Same thing happened in the Dominican Republic when I preached there a number of times. Uh, I might say something in a sentence, it might take them two or three sentences to say it. You know, you wonder what's going on here? Difference in language. And the same is true when we're going from Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek into English. The developing version submitted every book to stylist consultants. They made suggestions. This was done twice in the process of translation. And then samples of the translation were tested for clarity and frees a reading by, var- by various kinds of people. Again, looking for a translation that would be readable and so on today. The use of thou, thee, and thine in reference to deity were judges <laughs> archaic, which vi- would violate you know, their purpose. Neither Hebrew, Aramaic, nor Greek use specific pronouns for the persons of the Godhead. There is a sense in which the work of translation is never wholly finished. No matter what translation you're working on. As in other documents, the precise meaning of the biblical text is sometimes uncertain. Discoveries in the last century have helped in understanding difficult passages, but some uncertainties remain. The the more significant of these have been called to the reader's attention in the footnotes. I want you to understand about translations. If you were to take the original King James, there are notes in the margins in the 1611 saying we're not certain about this. And you will find the same is true in the 1769 because going from one language to another is not always just simple. And again, you're dealing with Documents that go back thousands of years. So in the NIV, there's notations made, you know, in a footnote, if they're not positive about something. In regard to the divine name, Yahweh, that is the divine name of God, the translators use Lord, all in capital letters. That's the way they chose to... Translate it, and they state that in the preface. To achieve clarity, the translator sometimes supplied words, not in the original text, but required by the context. If there was uncertainty about such material, it is enclosed in brackets. And you will find that true in quite a few translations. You know, there's something in brackets that appears in the King James That appears in some other translations, you know, where words were supplied that are not in the original, seeking to communicate clearly. Now, in relation to the NIV, what we just looked at is what the translators of the NIV are saying, and I think we need to take them at their word, unless we come across something that is otherwise, and then I think we would have to have someone talk to them about it. So this is their approach to translation of the NIV. Questions or comments to this point? <clears throat> Lord willing, we'll take some time in what the translators of the King James also said. Not tonight, but you know another time, because King James has been in use for Well, 400th anniversary, Now we just passed that the latter part of last year. Now we're going to look at the NIV 11. Now remember, the NIV 11 would be, if you want to call it a revision or an updating of the NIV, it's not a new translation. So what we already stated would be true. These are some things that are stated in the preface of the NIV 11. The goal of the NIV, and again I'm talking about the NIV 11, is to enable English-speaking people from around the world to read and hear God's eternal word in their own language. So the committee, the charter of the NIV, when it was first translated, wanted to keep the NIV current, you know, in terms of English and language so that's why there was a revision that is not in the charter of you know, other translations but the NIV said we want to update every so often to keep current with the language of people and please understand that if you go back before the King James you go back to the Geneva Bible language scripture in the language of the people Bishop's Bible Scripture in the language of the people. King James, Scripture in the language of the people. And then we have the American Standard Version, Scripture in the language of the people. The New American Standard, Scripture in the language of the people. And you'll find that that has been true time and time again. And that is why people go to other countries and will translate Scripture. Scripture in the language of the people. And just recently, uh, Wali language, Ron, do you remember? Wali language, I think in Africa, northern Africa, there was a translation of scripture recently dedicated. Uh, you know, someone had spent years there translating, again, scripture and the language of the people. And that has been true of translations down through the ages. As good as they are, English translations must be regularly updated so that they will continue to communicate accurately the meaning of God's word. Updates are needed in order to reflect the latest developments in understanding of the biblical world and its languages and to keep change or pace with changes in English usage. Again, that is what they are saying in the NIV 11. The next one is a fairly lengthy The original NIV, 1978, was published in a time when a man man would naturally be understood in many contexts to be referring to a person, whether male or female. But most English-speaking speakers today tend to hear a distinct male connotation in this word. In recognition of this change in English, this edition of the NIV, along with almost all other recent English translations, Substitutes other expressions when the original text intends to refer generically to men and women equally. Follow what they're saying? They may not use man if it's referring to man and woman equally. They're not taking a word that is referring to a male and making it generic. They're taking a term that is referring to male or female, and there they may use generic. Rather than using man, they may use person and so on. You follow the distinction of what's happening there. And again, they would say that is due to change in language, and I will show you a study that has been done independent of any Bible translation of change that has taken place in the English language in the last, no 30 years or so. Thus, for instance... The NIV, 1984, rendering of 1 Corinthians 8.3, but the man who loves God is known by God, becomes in this edition, but whoever loves God is known by God. On the other hand, man and mankind as denoting the human race are still widely used. This edition of the NIV, therefore, continues to use these words along with other expressions in this way. So if you go back to Genesis, you will find that In the King James, I think it says, no, let's create man in our image. The NIV would say, let us create mankind in our image. And the same in Genesis 5 and verse 2. Again, they feel that because of some change in the English language. And we will look at certain passages to show that or there's some concern with some passages, are terms where they're speaking of males being translated in a generic way. And the translators would say, no, we have not used man as an example. where it's referring to people in general, to male and female. That's what they're saying. And again, what I've checked out, I think they're accurate on that, and they would say it's because of the change in language. And I realize that some would say that's tied in with the feminist movement, and I will respond to that, you know, at a future time. There is a move away from using the third-person masculine singular pronouns, he, him, is, to refer to men... And women equally. The reader will frequently encounter a they, them, or their to express a generic singular idea. So rather than saying he, when it's referring to people in general, male or female or adults or teenagers or whatever, they will use they, them, and their. And again, they're saying this is what we're doing. And then Mark 16, 9 through 20, and John 7, 53 through 8, 11, although long accorded virtually equal status with the rest of the Gospels, have a very questionable and confused standing in the textual history of the New Testament. Those passages are there. They just have a notation that, you know, there's been question for years, you know, were they... You no know, in the original text they're not saying they're not they're just saying there's a question about that and they make a note of that in both passages any questions or comments